Amen. All right, so for today's text, uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5, uh, verses 31 and 32. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can flip there or scroll there if you're uh, using your phone. Uh, But while you get to those verses, I want to give two quick disclaimers. Uh, First, we're talking about marriage today, uh, and I recognize I'm young, very young, younger than most of you here. Uh, And so I don't want to pretend like I'm giving some sort of wisdom from my own experience for summer hacks, right? I I know that's the the sermon series we've been in. Uh, The whole theme has been wisdom. uh, And I didn't exactly, you know, Brian didn't exactly put it on the calendar to get sick with COVID a month ago. Uh, So uh, this doesn't quite fit in with that theme of summer hacks. Um, But I I did want to talk about something. It's an issue uh, I get asked a lot on the college campus is, What is Christian marriage, and why do Christians think about marriage in this one particular way as opposed to how the world thinks about it, right? And so I don't want to talk about how you should be married and give wisdom. Instead, I want to look at God's word, uh, what marriage should be. So this isn't speaking from my experience or just what I think it should be, but because I have no authority on that, right? But from the authority of God's word, what does he have to say about this? And that's what I want to dig into Uh, and explore and look at what he intends for marriage to be and what implications it has on our everyday life. Uh, Second, for anybody who is unmarried, uh, whether that is not yet married, whether that is divorced, widowed, or never intending to marry, uh, this message is for you too, right? This isn't just for married folks. Uh, We're looking at God's design for marriage and the meaning behind it, right? I think there's a gospel message here in marriage, and that's what we're going to be exploring If you remember the last time I spoke, we talked about the parable of the four soils and how to bear good fruit. Uh, Not many of us are farmers. I know Mark has that blueberry farm, so maybe he had a direct application for that. But just like we took away spiritual truths, even if we're not farmers, if you're not married right now, this message is for you too, and there's gospel hope in this too. So with that said, uh, let's turn to Ephesians 5 and read what God's word has to say. Starting in verse 31, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's the context? What's God trying to communicate here to us? Well, first, in the overall book, uh, this book of Ephesians was written by Paul, and it's basically like a how-to guide for Christianity. Chapters 1 through 3, the first half of the book, uh, mainly deal with What is our new identity? What has Christ given us? How should we think about ourselves? And the latter half, this back half, is more how do we live it out? How do we apply it? Okay, so now what? And that's where chapter 5 is. Chapter 5 is in this back half, and this is one of the most practical sections in the book. Uh, Starting a few verses early in verse 18, Paul says we should be filled with the Spirit. And then from there, he goes on to describe what a Spirit-filled life looks like. And this goes all the way from the private life, from the home life, to your work life. Everything should be transformed and radically different because of the new identity we have in Christ. And this marriage section falls in that home life section. That home life, that private life, even what you do behind closed doors, that part is radically transformed by God. In verses 22 to 30, Paul gives a brief description of how to on marriage. And I say it's brief. Really, you could probably give like four or five sermons just based off those verses, right? But then after the how-to of marriage, after he says what marriage should look like, he goes into the 
fundamental reality of what marriage is at its core. Here's how you live out marriage, he seems to say, and here's why we do it. And that why we do it is crucially important, and that's what we're digging into today. I'm sure at one point or another, all of us have been told, or when we ask a question, you know, why do we do this? We've all been told, well, because those, those are the rules. Uh, or even worse, uh, when you were a kid, you might have heard, because I said so, right? <laughs> That's not a very compelling reason to obey, right? That's a sufficient reason to obey. That's a good enough reason to obey, especially when mom is tired or dad has a headache. Uh, but quick show of hands, real quick, who's ever been convinced in an argument or changed your attitude just because someone said, because I say so? No one, right? That, that's never changed anybody's mind. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the, the problem is we're not robots. We, we don't like just obeying for the sake of obeying. We, like, we have questions. We want answers. Uh, we want to know why we can't have cake after 9 p.m. We want to know why we can't watch the R-rated movie. We want to know why we can't pet the funny-looking dog that's foaming at the mouth. There might be good reasons for that, but we want to know why, right? And so I think if we want to be mature in our living, if we want to live consistently in our faith, if we want to give reasonable and thoughtful answers when people ask us why we live as Christians, we need to go beyond the how do we live, and especially this question of how do we live as a married couple. And we need to learn what God's intention is behind the commandment. We need to look at why he says that. And I think that's what Paul is doing here with these verses. So here's the one thing, the big takeaway. If you take nothing else away from this message, here's the one thing I want you to think about. God intends for Christian marriage to display his love for and unity with his people. That's not on the screen up there. I didn't have time to make slides because, you know, last minute message of COVID. <laughs> so I'll say it again. God intends for Christian marriage to display his love for and unity with his people. So let's read again Ephesians 5:31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right off the bat, notice that uh, in most of your Bibles that verse should have quotation marks around it. Paul didn't make up this phrase. He's actually quoting something. He's going all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. God made Adam and Eve in his own image, and then he gave them the gift of marriage. This is an important text, one that gets referenced by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to support the validity and the importance of marriage. So in describing what marriage is supposed to be, Paul calls our attention all the way back to the very first marriage, before sin even entered the picture, to give us a clear visual of what marriage is supposed to be. So what is said in this first picture of marriage? What, what, what can we learn from this? Well, going back to this verse, notice that it first says, a man, and then skips ahead a little bit to his wife. So we're talking about something exclusive, a union between just two individuals, uh, one of which is a man and the other of which is a woman. Second, it continues, uh, shall leave his father and mother. This is an act of maturity. This is an act of independence. This isn't something a child is able to do. Uh, and it shows this new unity. It shows this new uh, autonomy between the new couple. Third, it says, hold fast. Marriage is a unity, a holding fast, an endurance through the hardships. Marriage isn't a temporary fling, but a lifelong commitment to one another. And finally, it says, the two shall become one flesh. 
So again, this confirms the monogamous claim by saying the two, right? So we're not talking about three, four, 20. Uh, it confirms that. But beyond that, it talks about the consummation of the marriage, right? This might be shocking to see in the Bible, but sex is actually a good gift from God, one which he intends for the tight binding of two married people into one flesh. Sex doesn't just uh, bind us in a physical moment as a one-time deal, but it's a union of spiritual, emotional, social, and mental identities. Now, I want to be clear here. Uh, I don't say it's a melting or mixing of the two identities, but it's a union of the two identities. Uh, you don't start sharing a single brain when you become married as a couple, right? But because you're now united as one flesh, you are a unit together. A married couple can't see to their own needs and ignore the needs of the other. They must not seek their own individual good, but instead the good of the marriage. They don't seek to harm each other, for that would harm the unity together. So again, from the very first pages of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis, before sin ever entered the picture, this is God's design and intention for marriage. I can't stress how important this is for understanding how God views marriage. To quote the Bible commenter uh, Arthur Paziza, no, one's, no one verse speaks more strongly about the sacredness and permanency of the marriage bond and the fidelity within marriage. From Genesis to Jesus to Paul, the definition of marriage is clear. It's an exclusive monogamous relationship between a consenting adult man and a consenting adult woman to be united in one flesh and live as an autonomous unit together for as long as they should live. Now, nothing I've talked about should be really surprising or new. Today, we call this the traditional view of marriage um, because that's what's existed for so many thousands of years. Uh, but this traditional view isn't exclusively a Christian view, right? Just about every culture has this view, uh, perhaps with some slight variations, uh, but pretty much every culture has this in its values. So how do we account for that as Christians? How do we understand why so many people have this view? Well, remember what I said, that this marriage uh, image, this marriage institution, uh, comes from before the fall, before sin entered the picture. There are very few things mentioned as existing before the fall, and marriage is one of them. The institution of marriage is older than death itself. It's etched deep within us as, a uh, as an image of God's intention. Romans 1 talks about a natural law that God has put on our hearts, and I think this is why we see marriage so consistent across every religion and culture. But if this is the case, if this traditional view is shared by so many people, what makes the Christian view of marriage different? Is it unique? Is it special? Or should we just think about marriage the same way the rest of the world thinks about marriage? Well, first, let's think about uh, the fundamental reasons underneath marriage. You know, how does culture think marriage works? What does culture say the why of marriage is? Well, first, there's a view that marriage is just something purely physical. It's all about attraction and impulse. It's basically just a legal certificate that says you can sleep with this person as often as you'd like. This view basically believes that deep attraction and the social norms of monogamy made us make this institution that we call marriage today. Uh, and we're trying to anxiously fill this craving that we have deep down inside us, this instinct we call sex. Second, there's an evolutionary view that says that for reasons of survival and development and, and society, we invented this institution of marriage. 
You know, we, we had previously a system of promiscuity and animalistic uh, gratification of our urges, uh, and that led to a lot of trouble and confusion for our ancestors. So to make things more efficient, to make things more streamlined, we came up with marriage. So marriage is just a solution, just an efficient, beautiful solution to a problem that we had in our primordial past. Finally, the third view of marriage is one that holds fast to individualism, right? It insists on the rights and individuality of each person apart from each other. Using whatever power you have, you insist on your own way and put your spouse down. There's no partnership here. There's no one combined flesh unit uh, seeking the good of the marriage, only an unloving and disrespectful environment where everybody insists on my rights, which leads to hurt egos, antagonism, and bitterness between the spouses. There might have been some convenient reason for you to get married in the first place, maybe attraction or opportunity or stability, but it's painful to watch these two individuals continue trying to live together in isolation from one another. I think our American culture today is so hyper-individualistic that this becomes a serious prevalent problem we see over and over again. And it only takes one look at our pop culture, at the kind of jokes we make, at our politics and our counselor's offices, uh, to see the prevalence of this view and idea. So are any of these three ways the ways that Christians should look at marriage, right? Not at all. And that's what verse 32 is all about. That's what it gets to the heart of. So let's read verse 32 here. This mystery is profound, and he's talking about the, the union of the man and the woman, what he just talked about in verse 31. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. As Christians, we've been told that this profound mystery has been revealed to us. The world knows the how of marriage, or at least they should know the how of marriage, but Christians actually get insight into the why of marriage. This word mystery here doesn't mean incomprehensible, right? A lot of times we talk about you know, the mysteries of the universe, things that we'll never be able to wrap our minds around. But that's not what the author is, is saying here. Uh, when he talks about a mystery, he means something that was previously hidden, something that was secret, but now the cat's out of the bag. Now we've been told what the meaning behind it is. We've all seen those uh, detective TV shows. It starts out with the mystery of who done it, right? We, we, we start out not knowing what it is, but as the case develops, you finally have a point where the detective says, here's what happened. And he lays out all the evidence and says, he's the killer, right? And so it's not incomprehensible who the killer is once it's been revealed. We can understand it, we can know it, because we've been told who did it. And that's what Paul's doing here in verse 32. He says this mystery is profound, but that it refers to Christ and the church. To me, this is one of the most glorious and one of the most incredible verses on marriage in the whole Bible. No other view of marriage you find anywhere in the world is going to have a view of marriage that's so sacred, so important, or so applicable as this one little thought. Verse 32 is a tiny little thought, but it's so important. It's a powerful witness of who God is, of his goodness, and the way he wants his people to live. And that's what makes the Christian view so unique. If we choose to marry, we're being invited by God to enter into this grander and this eternal love story that's the union between Christ and the church, between God and his people himself. We become actors in this transcendent drama in which God himself is the director. This is a mystery because although every culture has this concept of marriage, only in Christ is the meaning and the symbolism of it revealed. 
The same unity is based on love, charity, forgiveness, humility, and respect that is shared between Christ and the church. And so too should a husband and wife be united in those things. But the problem is a lot of us don't think about marriage in this way. We revert back to the old way of thinking, to one of those other views that I talked about. And so we end up with the exact same marriage problems as the rest of the world, if not even worse. If we think about marriage as just being based on desire and attraction, we have no foundation for long-term holding fast. After all, what happens when the emotions run dry, when things get boring, or when someone more attractive comes into the picture? Our view of marriage, our view of love, our view of sexuality, our identity needs to be in something deeper than our attractions and desire. And if we think about marriage as just being convenient, efficient, something streamlined, a solution to problems, we have no framework for forgiveness and reconciliation. If this is all about problem solving, what happens when marriage isn't easy, when problems do come up in the marriage, when it's not convenient, when you don't feel like marriage is meeting your needs anymore? And finally, what about when we retain our individuality and try to assert our own will over our spouse? Such relationships lead to abuse, whether physical, emotional, verbal, and it leads to deep hurts. And that's not at all what God says marriage is about. These are great and wonderful sub-purposes of marriage, right? God has these great sub-purposes of marriage. Companionship, attraction, sexual pleasure, procreation, these are all wonderful and good fruits of marriage. But if they replace the central meaning of marriage, if these sub-purposes replace the primary purpose of marriage, they can't hold the weight of your marriage that you're trying to put on it. I think these three views are at the root of our modern culture of quick and easy, no-fault divorces. When the basis of your relationship is not the Christian view, it becomes easy to leave one another for any and every reason. I really like this quote from a preacher. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he says, Unity is the central principle of marriage, and it is because so many people in the modern world have never had a con concept of what's involved in a unity of marriage that they're writing so loosely to marriage and breaking their vows and pledges, so much so that divorce has become one of the major problems of our age. Now, I want to give a quick disclaimer here. Not every divorce is a no-fault divorce, and not every divorce is your fault, right? When the religious leaders asked Jesus if divorce was acceptable for any and every reason, he said no, but then he offered an explanation, a framework, an exception to the rule. Because unity is a two-way street, and it doesn't solely depend on you, Jesus himself said that there are legitimate reasons why someone can be a faithful follower of his and still be divorced. But even with this option, even though there, is, there are exceptions by Jesus himself for divorce, I think we should be careful about using it, and we should be wise in how we use it. Amputation can be really good for the body. When you, when you have cancer in your arm or leg, it can spread to the whole body and very quickly kill it. And so amputation can be a good option. But I think we should be wary of a doctor who haphazardly says, you get an amputation, you get an amputation. You have a scratch, you have a broken arm, you get the same amputation diagnosis as if you had a tumor or cancer. And I think that's where our culture's at. Our culture, if you go online and you see anybody complaining about any small thing that their spouse does, you look at the comments, and all the comments are saying, leave him, you can do better, you can find better. And it's all about, at the minor inconvenience, just up and leave, start over, find something new. And I think that's what breaks God's heart. So what do we do about this? How does this affect us as members of the church body, uh, both single and married alike? Well, first, 
this understanding of marriage, this view of marriage as Christ and the church, uh, helps us understand why God has given certain commandments. Sexual immorality is a, a prevalent topic in the Bible, and a lot of times it might just seem, well, because God said so, and that's the only reason we get. But if we understand it in terms of the symbol, in terms of what it's representing, I think the picture becomes more clear, and we understand why God cares about this so much. So to give you an illustration, uh, think about the acronym, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Does everybody remember learning that in grade school? No? no. Some people do, some people don't. Uh, this acronym helps you remember uh, what you're supposed to do uh, with math, right? Uh, please, you have parentheses, uh, excuse, then you have exponents. Uh, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, you have parentheses, exponents, multiply, divide, addition, and subtraction. It, it's a little mnemonic device to help you remember uh, what's going on there. But let's imagine for a moment that I come along and I say, well, in my Hispanic culture, we call our aunts tia, and I don't have an aunt named Sally. In fact, my mom's sister's named Rosella. Uh, so what if I came along and say, please excuse my dear tia Rosella? If I try to apply that to my math class, if I try to re apply that to remembering the order of operations, that doesn't work anymore, right? Uh, I had this illustration that's supposed to help me remember what I'm supposed to do in math class, uh, but because I've changed the symbol, it distorts and separates the symbol from the truth that it's supposed to represent. If the mystery here is, uh, the mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, we have to treat this symbol carefully and as holy and unchangeable. And I want to be clear here, when we talk about the church, I'm not talking about the local church here, Harvest Community Church, right? I'm talking to all of God's people, the universal church, right? So what do we see in this symbol? Christ doesn't abuse his church, and so abuse is out of the question. Christ does not have many churches. There's not one Christ in many churches, and so polygamy is not God's will. God never leaves or forsakes his church, so abandonment is not what God wants. There's not two Christs without a church or two churches without a Christ, so same-sex marriage doesn't fit the story of what God intends marriage to be. And finally, Christ doesn't forcibly make everyone a Christian. So consent in marriage and relationship is God's intention for intimacy. Second, this view of marriage gives us encouragement uh, and understanding as Christians on how we should view our own salvation. And here's where I think having a, a more Baptist view of, of the sacraments helps us with this, right? For example, we see baptism not as a saving act, but as an outward expression of something that's already happened on the inside. Baptism represents, you know, once you were dead, but now you're alive. And that happens once in the life of a Christian. And so we don't believe that we should constantly be getting rebaptized. We believe we get baptized once to show that new life coming into the picture. Or let's take communion, right? Communion is a symbol of Christ's death and resurrection. And communion is a symbol of the forgiveness we have because of his sins. We need to ask God's forgiveness frequently and consistently, right? And so we frequently take communion as a reminder and as a symbol of how frequently we ask for forgiveness of sins, right? But with marriage, if this is supposed to be a symbol of God's love and unity with his people, it's an ongoing symbol, one that doesn't have an end or a break. You can't just put your marriage on pause. There's no pause button on marriage. Likewise, God's love for us is unending. It happens every day. And that we proclaim in the life of every faithful married Christian couple. I think the most beautiful image of this in the Bible comes from the book of Hosea, where God compares himself to a husband and his people to a wayward, unfaithful wife. 
She leaves him and pursues other lovers, but he stays faithful and loving. Even when we are bad partners, God still loves us, not because of any works we do to impress him or keep him, but simply because he made a covenant to love us and be united with us. God's commitment to us is based on covenant, not convenience, and that should give us great hope and encouragement in understanding our salvation. And on the reverse side, we should not remain with Christ only when it's easy, convenient, or pleasing to us. I'll be honest, there's times that are really good, times of sweet intimacy and spiritual highs with Christ, but those can't sustain you. If you only came to Jesus because you expect him to bless you, that's not going to last long term. If you think back to the last time I spoke, we talked about the, the parable of the four soils, and we talked about such a person who stays when things are good and easy. But when the going gets tough, when the sun comes out, that person quickly falls away. In the same way that basing your marriage on, on sex or emotions is a bad and, and not consistent way to base your marriage, so too basing your relationship with Jesus on the blessings you can get from him and the good times you can get from him is a dangerous thing to do in the long run. Third, this understanding of the mystery of marriage can help evaluate us for marriage. It can help us evaluate ourselves and see if we're ready to be married. If anyone out there is hoping to be married and you'd like to know if you're ready as a Christian, ask yourself, are you prepared to live up to the standards of Ephesians 5, 22 to 30? You don't have to be perfect with it. I, I promise right now I'm married and I'm not perfect at it, right? But that's the commitment that you're going to be making if you go forward. This isn't a temporary decision or a haphazard endeavor, but a commitment before God to display the love story he has with his people. You're displaying that to the outside world and to those inside the church even. So you shouldn't jump into marriage, but instead we should carefully consider the role we're to play. And remember, marriage isn't a mandatory sacrament, right? Jesus asked everybody to, to take communion and to be baptized, but not to be married. And I won't even say that marriage is a better option than singleness. I don't think that marriage should be your automatic assumption of what God wants in our lives. 1 Corinthians 7 says that unmarried people can be more useful to the kingdom of God than married people. So don't feel like marriage is a commandment given to all Christians to follow. If your calling is not to be an actor in this drama of marriage, or if you want to totally devote yourself to God's work without being united to someone else and having to, to look backwards at that, you have freedom to do that in the Bible. The Bible says that, frankly, more people should live like this. So I don't want you to overvalue marriage. And finally, for those of us who are married, the Christian view of marriage gives us an example of what we should look to, something that we can aim at and strive for. There's plenty of books on marriage, but the best role model we have is the model of Christ and the church. Let's look at the last verse in Ephesians 5. We talked about 31 and 32, but really briefly, let's touch on 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let's see to it that the wife uh, respects her husband. If you want to be a better husband, if you want to know how to be a better husband, it says right here, love your wife as you love yourself. And if you want to be a better wife, it says right here, let's see to it that she respects her husband. In a world where finding good role models and examples is nearly impossible, what better aim could we have than the love and unity of God and his people? Despite what the world might say, marriage is much deeper than a social institution that we made up or just a contract piece of paper that we signed. It's a sacred symbol of, of Christ and the love and unity he has with his church. 
It demonstrates and displays the unity, the love, the selflessness, the lifelong commitment he has with us. Every time you see a godly married couple, this is the picture I want you to have in mind. The goal is not to say, wow, they're such good partners, but to look beyond that and say, wow, that's how Christ loves the church. Like Matthew 5.16 says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. If you're married, let even your marriage be a light that points people back to God. If everything we do is for the glory of God, then so also marriage must be for him. And if you're unmarried, you can find encouragement in seeing that the love of the married believers around you is but a symbol, but a small taste, but a mere shadow of the love Christ has for you as part of his church. And for all of us, I think we can rest in the promise of Hosea 2, 19 through 20, where God says this, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. That's a, such a powerful promise of being welcomed into God's family, as being welcomed in. He is going to make the move and marry us to him. And so I think that's something that we can rest in and something we can find a lot of hope in. So here at Harvest, we, we like to end with two prayers. Uh, the first one is a prayer of salvation. Uh, marriage doesn't work unless you say, I do, right? This commitment of love, this commitment of unity that Jesus is offering, uh, it doesn't work unless you say, I do. And so if you haven't made that decision, if you haven't made that promise, that covenant with Jesus, and you're hoping to today, maybe you'd pray something like this. Jesus, I recognize that I am apart from you. I recognize that there are things that separate me from you. Uh, but Jesus, I recognize that you have an offer on the table. You have an offer to take away my sins, uh, to unite with me, to offer me new life, to offer me joy and hope and love. Um, and to be faithful to me. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would change my heart. I pray that you would take away my sin uh, and that you would give me new life in yourself. King Jesus, uh, I ask this in your name. Amen. If you pray that for the first time, uh, congratulations. You're part of the family, right? Uh, all it takes is that one simple prayer uh, to be made part of God's family. And so if you prayed that for the first time, we, we'd love to hear that. We'd love to know about that. Um, not because we're trying to extort you or grab your tithe money or anything like that, right? Uh, but, but I think it's like a family reunion. Uh, you want to know when someone comes home. And so uh, let someone know that you've talked to, uh, someone that you came here with. Uh, there's an info basket in the back, and so you can write that info there. Uh, but if you've already prayed that prayer before, uh, or even if you just prayed that prayer a minute ago, uh, maybe you join me in this prayer of application as we look to apply what God's word had to say. So maybe you'd pray something like this with me. King Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your love for us is not based on what we can do or how convenient we are to you. But, but God, thank you that your love for us is enduring and that it's without end. Uh, King Jesus, thank you that you are faithfully married to your church, that we don't have to impress you, but we can rest on the promise of your covenant. Um, God, as we consider marriage, if we are married, God, let our marriages be a better reflection uh, of you and of your love and a light to the world around us. Uh, and God, if we are unmarried, God, would we rest in the encouragement and hope of knowing that, that the kind of love you have for us is not one that ends 
or fades away, but one that will remain forever. King Jesus, in all things, we are grateful and we are thankful, and we want to love you back with the same kind of love that you show for us. God, inspire that. Grow us. Grow that in us. Give us that kind of love so that we can honor you and respect you and be faithful to you. It's in King Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome.